Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Dog breed stereotypes. We know they're out there. We hear them all the time. Chihuahuas are yappy dogs and they nip at your ankles. Dobermans and Rottweilers are scary looking dogs and therefore they're mean dogs. Pit bulls are vicious and aggressive dogs. Well, listen to this. A new study demonstrates that contrary to popular belief, a dog's breed won't predict a dog's behavior. More than 18,000 dog owners were surveyed and the DNA analyzed to see if the physical traits and behavior can be correlated with the dog breeds. The researchers concluded that the behavior of dogs and personality of dogs is pretty much determined by individual experiences, training, and other environmental factors, and not so much by the breed of the dog. So a dog's breed won't predict a dog's behavior. And that might not be a big surprise to some of you and me, because you and I know that every dog is an individual and has its own personality, regardless of what kind of dog it is. In this study, they scored dogs on what they call dog-human sociability. That's like how comfortable dogs are with people, including strangers. And guess who scored high on this measure of how receptive a dog is to unfamiliar people? The pit bull. Right up there along with the Labrador and Golden Retriever. But the pit bull? A friendly and sociable and loving dog? No, can't be. These are the dogs we ban from our cities and ban from living in certain apartment complexes because they're mean and they're vicious and will attack you and bite you without provocation with their locking jaws. Marjorie Alonzo, a co-author of the study, said, what the dog looks like is not really going to tell you what the dog acts like. Most of us know that. But we also know that many people have these preconceived notions of how a dog is going to act or behave and what his personality is going to be based on what kind of dog it is. The study also showed that the size of the dog had almost no effect on differences in behavior. Eleanor Carlson, one of the co-authors of the study, said, you will never have a Great Dane-sized Chihuahua and you'll never have a Chihuahua-sized Great Dane. But you can definitely have a Chihuahua that acts like a Great Dane and you can have a Great Dane with the same personality as a Chihuahua. So the dog's breed is not a good predictor of dog's behavior. And stereotyping a dog based on a breed can be damaging and harmful to the dog because it often leads to things like excessive killing of certain kinds of dogs in our shelters and can lead to breed-specific legislation, which are laws that regulate or ban certain dog breeds, those breeds who are believed to be dangerous or vicious, ostensibly to increase public safety. Breed-specific legislation typically targets pit bull-type dogs. And there are hundreds of major cities and counties in our country with bans and restrictions on pit bulls. In some areas, there's a complete ban on pit bulls, so you can't own or have a pit bull or something that even looks like a pit bull. It might not even be a pit bull, but if he has certain characteristics of a pit bull, well, he's banned. Some states or cities charge higher registration fees to own a pit bull type dog. Certain landlords and homeowners associations blatantly state that they will not allow pit bull type dogs. And some insurance companies use dog breed as a criteria to reject or deny homeowners coverage. There are some cities that require pit bull type dogs to be muzzled when out in public, regardless of whether or not the dog has ever shown any signs of aggression. That doesn't seem fair, does it? 
those in favor of breed-specific legislation say it's necessary to ensure the public safety and argue that such legislation protects citizens from vicious and dangerous dogs. Well, if you talk to people who actually know what they're talking about and have done research in this area, they would argue that breed-specific legislation is ineffective and a means of spreading stereotypes and stigmatizing certain kinds of dogs. And I've said this before many times, if the goal is to reduce dog bites and dog attacks, perhaps funds and resources would be best used on education and regulation that targets irresponsible dog owners and dog breeders and animal abusers, not responsible guardians. Breed-specific legislation uses appearance as the primary factor for regulation, regardless of a dog's behavior and regardless of responsible ownership. You might have the most well-behaved dog and you might be the most responsible dog guardian, but if your dog looks a certain way, there might be restrictions imposed upon him or you, or he might be banned, depending on what geographic area or city we're talking about. And this is another big problem with breed-specific legislation, is that it's not even targeting a breed of dog. It's targeting, or it's based, on the physical characteristics of a dog. Because one doesn't even know for sure what breed or mix of breeds your dog is, unless DNA testing is done. Studies have shown that even those who are most familiar with dogs, like veterinarians and dog trainers and you and me, are not reliably able to determine a dog's makeup or dog's breed just by looking at the physical traits of a dog. We currently have two dogs in our family. Both are around 60, 65 pounds. The older one, Cosmo, he's all black, except for his feet, which are white, and a little patch on his chest, which is white. He has many physical traits, which one might associate with those of a pit bull type dog, except for his black color. And when we adopted Cosmo, our veterinarian guessed that he had some American Pitbull Terrier in him and maybe some black lab as well. And the shelter staff at the shelter where we adopted Cosmo from labeled him as a black lab mix. Cosmo's DNA test indicated he was about 50% Pitbull breed type. The other 50% was a mix of a bunch of other breeds. How much black lab in Cosmo? None. Zero. Skye, our other dog, has a blocky head and a big, beautiful smile like you might associate with a pit bull. But Skye has a skinny body, long, slender legs, and the color and texture of her coat and the color of her eyes are such that when we first rescued Skye, many people would identify her as a Weimariner. At the time, I wasn't really sure what a Weimariner looked like, so I had to look it up once I figured out how to spell it. Anyway, how much Weimariner is in Skye's DNA? None. Zero. In fact, she ends up being 99%, guess what? Pitbull. So if you think about it for two seconds, using appearance as a primary factor for regulation or creating laws makes no sense whatsoever. Years ago, a woman named Victoria Voith appeared on the show. Her primary area of research was in visual breed identification of dogs. And Victoria got interested in this topic when she was working at various animal shelters and she noticed that there was a diversity of opinions of shelter workers when trying to identify the makeup or breed of dogs. 
So she studied the relationship between the visual identification of the dogs, right? What breed a dog or mixed breed a dog is determined by someone's perception and the identification of the dogs determined by DNA. And her studies showed that most of the time, in fact, 75% of the time, there was misidentification of the dog. So what a person thinks a dog is by their looks, by their physical characteristics, did not match the DNA of the dog 75% of the time. That's pretty significant. She explained that people working at shelters or rescue groups are often required by management to label or identify the dogs that enter the shelter. So they are instructed to pretty much guess what they think the breed of dog is, or at least guess at what they think its predominant breed is, and then call it a mix of that breed. And she said what people do is they look at a certain feature of a dog that they perceive to be a feature of a specific breed, and they identify it with that purebred dog. So let's see. This dog is black, medium size, average looking, so I guess I'll label him a black lab mix. Or this dog is small big ears, big eyes, so I'm going to label him as a chihuahua mix. Victoria was explaining that there are harmful consequences of mislabeling or misidentifying dogs. It might affect the success of the adoption of the dog from the shelter. A dog labeled as, let's say, a pit bull mix might not even be considered by some adopters. We know that's true. It happens all the time. Misidentification of dogs can affect how dogs are treated by the shelter workers. Maybe the shelter has a policy that certain breeds of dogs are considered less adoptable and therefore euthanized earlier than others would be. And misidentifying dogs might affect how the adopter treats that particular dog. And then, of course, she explains another harmful consequence to mislabeling dogs is certain dogs might then be subjected to discrimination, like breed-specific legislation. Victoria explained the problem is the data that we use to make these laws or regulations are based on people's perception of what the dog breeds are, which could have been tabulated from shelters or vet office records or emergency rooms. So we have absolutely no idea how accurate or valid this information is when they were entered in the databases or written in the research papers. And emergency room records is a good example. Approximately 1,000 emergency room visits per day in the U.S. are due to dog bites. Emergency rooms record the number of dog bites that they treat. They will ask you, what kind of dog bit you? Well, I don't know. It was a large dog, sort of had some features like a pit bull. Okay, let's just record it in our ER records that a pit bull dog bit you. And this data, then, is used to create dog bite statistics. And it's used in research papers talking about which dog breeds are most likely to bite you and the most vicious dogs. Or this data is used to create these laws that ban or restrict certain types of dogs. So can one accurately conclude that pit bulls or rottweilers or German shepherds cause more dog bites or attacks than other breeds of dogs? I don't think so not based on records of people guessing at or assuming the breeds of dogs involved in human dog bite related incidences. And one more thing, and then we're gonna have to take a break. It's been said that little dogs bite more than big dogs, but little dog bites are underreported because the big dogs have a stronger bite and they do more damage if they bite. And you're likely to seek out treatment for a bite from a big dog. Okay, after the break, I want to share with you some more interesting research related to this topic. 
Don't go away. You're listening to Animals Today. For more than 60 years, the International Society for Animal Rights has been consistently fighting the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and advancing animal rights and law. ISAR is committed to saving animals' lives through ISAR's annual Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. To learn more about ISAR's programs, please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back. A new study finds a dog's breed won't predict a dog's behavior. Senior author Eleanor Carlson says, while genetics play a role in the personality of any individual dog, specific dog breed is not a good predictor of those traits. What we found is that the defining criteria of a golden retriever are its physical characteristics, the shape of its ears, the quality and color of its fur, its size, not whether it is friendly. You and I know this, but many people have these preconceived notions that certain breeds are more dangerous than others, and how a dog is going to act or behave is based on what kind of dog it is. And in fact, there are hundreds of laws and policies out there that discriminate against certain breeds based on the assumptions that they are inherently dangerous. These laws are called breed-specific legislation, and they primarily target pit bull-type dogs. Those in favor of breed-specific legislation say it's necessary to reduce dog bites and dog attacks and to ensure the public safety, and such legislation protects citizens from vicious and dangerous dogs. But wait a minute, wait a minute. If we now know, and most of us have known this for a while, that the behavior of dogs and personality of dogs is pretty much determined by individual experiences, training, and other environmental factors, and not so much by the breed of the dog. Is it really fair we have these laws that discriminate against certain breeds? Of course not. But that's why these laws are also called breed discriminatory legislation. And that's why for many years, animal advocates and researchers have been saying these laws are not effective. In addition, Breed-specific legislation restricts dogs based on a certain appearance. So this is just another problem with breed-specific legislation. It's really not even targeting a breed of dog. It's targeting or it's based on the physical characteristics of a dog. Because one doesn't even know for sure what breed or mix of breeds your dog is unless DNA testing is done. And numerous studies have shown that one can't reliably determine the breed or mix of breeds in a dog simply by the dog's physical traits or characteristics. And this is a huge problem with this legislation. It doesn't take into account the dog's actual behavior. And it doesn't take into account how responsible or irresponsible the dog owner is. So it uses appearance only as a means for discriminating. Experts agree that this type of legislation that restrict dogs based on appearance do not reduce dog bites or dog attacks in communities, and thus breed-specific legislation is ineffective. And of course, it's a means of spreading stereotypes and stigmatizing certain kinds of dogs, namely the pit bull. 
So perhaps it's time to focus our efforts on irresponsible or reckless dog owners and dog breeders and animal abusers instead of banning certain dogs based on their appearance. I mean, that's a big thing here, which I want to emphasize. Breed-specific legislation fails to address the irresponsible dog owners, and it fails to address the actual behavior of the dog we're punishing. And another big thing, breed-specific legislation not only discriminates against dogs, but it punishes people as well. Why should responsible dog owners suffer? If you own a dog and that dog falls under the regulated breeds, is it really fair for you to be forced to pay fines or move or have difficulty finding housing or having to muzzle your dog in certain areas or in the worst cases be forced to relinquish your dog? Did you know that animal shelters are forced to kill larger numbers of healthy, adoptable dogs in cities and states where breed-specific laws make adopting and owning certain dogs virtually impossible? According to pitbullinfo.org, peer-reviewed studies have concluded that preventable factors related to irresponsible ownership are the primary cause for the majority of dog bite-related fatalities, and that breed is not a factor. BSL does nothing to address the relevant and most significant factors that are scientifically linked to serious dog bite-related incidences, such as a dog's history of negative behavior, previous bite-related incidents, and factors related to irresponsible ownership. According to the Humane Society of the United States, experts agree that breed-specific legislation and similar policies that restrict dogs based on appearance do not reduce dog bites in communities or enhance public safety. The American Bar Association states, in part, the American Bar Association urges all state, territorial, and local legislative bodies and governmental agencies to adopt comprehensive breed-neutral dangerous dog and reckless owner laws that ensure due process protections for owners, encourage responsible pet ownership, and focus on the behavior of both dog owners and dogs, and to repeal any breed discriminatory or breed-specific provisions. The American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior states, any dog may bite, regardless of the dog's size or sex or reported breed or mix of breeds. The AVSAB's position is that such legislation is ineffective and can lead to a false sense of community safety as well as welfare concerns for dogs identified often incorrectly as belonging to specific breeds. And this is from the National Canine Research Council. The trend in prevention of dog bites continues to shift in favor of multifactorial approaches focusing on improved ownership practices, better understanding of dog behavior, education of parents and children regarding safety around dogs, and consistent enforcement of dangerous dog and reckless owner ordinances in communities. Effective laws hold all dog owners responsible for the humane care, custody, and control of all dogs, regardless of breed or type. So there is universal rejection of breed-specific legislation and a growing awareness that this type of legislation not only does not improve community safety, but it penalizes responsible dog owners and harms their dogs. And of course, it stigmatizes the breed of dog. So the good news is breed-specific legislation is on the decline. And according to the main side of the United States, many municipalities have replaced breed-specific legislation with breed-neutral policies. You know, through our history of pit bulls 
and gang culture getting intertwined and the purposeful breeding and training and abusing these dogs to fight and become vicious and aggressive, you can see why these dogs are stigmatized. And this breed-specific legislation debate is far from over, and the pit bull is, in fact, the most controversial dog alive today. But just know that there's no convincing data to show that breed-specific legislation has been successful or effective. So it's really time that more lawmakers and policymakers and public officials come to grips with the reality that the dog or breed of dog is not the problem. And regulation that is going to have any true effect on public safety is going to have to focus on dog owners and dog breeders. And really, rather than legislate what breed or breeds of dogs people can have, perhaps we should legislate who can and cannot have dogs. I mean, we don't want sex offenders to be around kids. We also don't want animal abusers and the Michael Vicks of the world to have dogs. And just as each human person is an individual, each dog is an individual and shouldn't be judged because someone guessed at their breed and shouldn't be judged based on a physical trait or physical appearance. We should be evaluating and treating each dog, no matter its breed, as an individual. We'll be right back. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner from Animals Today. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave him at home where it's cool and comfortable. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple steps you can take. Make an announcement in the store or business that cars parked nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can. So never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Welcome back. Good news today. 21 dogs rescued from China who are destined to be consumed during the Yulin Dog Festival have been saved and flown to Los Angeles. I am pleased to welcome Lori Califf, Director of Programs, SPCA International. Hi, Lori. Hi, Peter. So nice to meet you. Thank you for oh, having me on the show. We are very pleased and it's great to meet you too. And congratulations. And we want to hear about these dogs and how you're able to pull this off and what happened to them and all that kind of stuff. But uh, for the uninitiated, uh, tell us about what happens in China and this uh, dog meat festival specifically, please. Yeah, the dog meat festival is called the Yulin, the Lichi and dog, um, Yulin Lichi and Dog Meat Festival. It happens every year at the end of June. It's been happening for a number of years. It's a 10-day festival where a lot of dog meat and cat meat is consumed. Now, the idea 
by everybody around the world. Everybody thinks that it only happens in China. It doesn't. Um, and this, this festival has been going on for a long time, but really it's important to note that it's not simply the locals that attend this festival. It really attracts foreigners from around the world to make this happen. Um, unfortunately, during this time, many dogs are taken from um, citizens, people's backyards, stolen or even shelters, and they are brought on trucks in deplorable conditions um, to slaughterhouses, and they're not treated very properly and humanely, and they're not killed in a very humanely, uh, humanely way at all. So it's really um, animal lovers from around the world really try to have been trying to eradicate this and trying to find a different way for um, slaughterhouses and restaurants to be able to find a different economic source in replacement of dog meat. So how is it that uh, your organization and the others, which I hope you will tell us about, came together and and uh, what's involved in rescuing these dogs and getting them over to the United States? Thank you. That's a it's a very good question because a lot of people think the idea is well why don't you, why can't you just put a dog or a cat on a plane and take them over to the United States or Canada and find refuge, but there's a lot a lot of red tape. Um, to go through. And we really want to make sure that we're adhering to all the strict um, governing laws in both the export and import countries. Um, so the way that we do it, SBC International has been around since 2006, and we are completely program based. And the way that we work around the globe, we're in about 83 countries at this moment. Um, we develop partnerships, strong partnerships around the world. We're a small team, so we're not always boots on the ground. China Rescue Dogs is one of our partners that approached us to see if we can aid in rescuing these uh, 21 dogs. And they, um, they have also partners in China working on the ground to be able to work with the government and get the dogs their proper paperwork, their rabies titers, all their blood tests so that they're safe and that we're really, again, making sure that we are, are covering all our bases. So we work together on it. Everybody has a different role. We, yeah. uh, we have a shelter support program where we offer funding and um, other types of resources, humane education legislation. So they approach us to see if we can help fund this flight and also give them resources. And this is the first time that you guys have collaborated specifically on this particular mission. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so that's, that's great. Okay. So you've got your team together, got your funding all, you mentioned Mr. McNeil, who seems to be one of the behind the scenes heroes here. And also the, the golden retriever rescue groups around, around the country. And that just want to acknowledge them, right? They're awesome. Absolutely. Um, there's so many people that it takes to make this happen. So many different organizations. I, I, it would take me quite a number of minutes to list them okay. all, but we applaud them all. I think okay. that people um, need to recognize that it's not one particular group to do this. And in order to make changes and to be able to work on a project and rescue mission like this, it takes people holding hands across the world to make this happen. So nicely put. Okay. So Teams together now, how do you obtain these particular dogs and then what happens? So as I mentioned, China Rescue Dogs and SBC International both have partners in, um, in various regions around China. Every year around the Yulin Dog Meat Festival, we try to work with our partners to see what we can do to aid to make more space so that they can go to the festivals and rescue and work and negotiate with the, the dog meat slaughters to be able to save more animals. 
Um, so for, in this particular case, China Rescue Dogs um, was working with uh, three separate organizations um, to bring in some of the larger dogs. The larger dogs, of course, weigh more, so they're more coveted um, at the time of the festival. The other issue that we face in China is that larger dogs are illegal to have and walk on the streets in certain regions of the country. So really, they do not have a chance of finding adoptive homes locally. So we handpicked, which is very, very difficult, oh, handpicked a selected few to make more space in the existing shelters so that our partners can go to the festival and rescue more. And they did. I see. And so the dogs are obtained. And then what are the steps to get them onto the plane? It takes a number of months. Um, it's important to note that back in 2021, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the United States, um, changed the import regulations. They put a ban out of from the import of dogs from over 113 countries, which they deemed high risk for rabies. Um, so this really closed the doors in the United States. And there were a lot of, of course, uh, animal shelters and organizations around the world, not just in China, that suffered from this. Shelters became overcrowded, as I mentioned before. It's very difficult to find local homes, especially for the larger dogs. So after a year, they opened up the doors again and streamlined the process. So it's lengthier, um, but of course, it adheres to making sure that the public health is addressed in the United States and of course the welfare of the animals. So from start to finish, by the time the animals get into uh, our partner's care, it's about three to four months. Prior to that, they are vaccinated, they are vetted, they are checked for zoonotic diseases. They are taken to the vet as well to draw blood so that they can get their rabies titers at an approved lab by the CDC. And once that is approved, then they are brought to a different sanctuary and holding so that they can decompress before the long flight. And it was uh, it was just a beautiful sight to see. Um, you know, we've worked on many rescues from around the world, but these particular this particular group of dogs, and again, I applaud our partners at China Rescue Dogs and their partners as well. They came off the plane with smiles and wagging tails. Right. And the plane's chartered. <laughs> the, it, it was a commercial airline. Uh-huh. Um, so it wasn't a chartered aircraft, but we had to reserve particular space. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, at the last minute, the airline that we were originally working with decided that they can't do this um, and they really didn't want to be in the public eye for it. So we had to pivot and then we finally made it happen. And Los Angeles at LAX, they've got a particular facility that's able to accept the dogs and get them ready to be deployed that's right. So um, if the dogs are coming in um, unaccompanied, they must go to a an approved CDC um, port of entry with their rabies titers, of course, and then they are quarantined and then revaccinated before they're able to go to other rescues. Uh, our partners at China Rescue Dogs just opened up the first ever bonded facility that's approved by the USDA and the CDC to help specifically rescue organizations as well as people with personal pets. So at a lower cost, because it can cost somewhere between $3,000 and $5,000 to import one dog mm -hmm. um, when it's all said and done from beginning to end. So um, it's now called WeatherTech Bruce Kennels at LAX, and they're opening up their doors to rescue organizations, and we're just so proud to be part of it. It's a good idea. Maybe Lori and I will explore this in a future show because it's a fascinating yeah. uh, con contribution to, to the whole chain. Okay, so the dogs are now uh, on, have they been rehomed? 
How are they doing? Well, they are doing really, really great. Um, even by day two, um, I was uh, I was in LA welcoming the dogs in with um, a number of other team members and uh, the team members from China Rescue Dogs as well. So most of them went in the first couple of days and they were dispersed across the country to different rescue organizations. I know that some a handful of dogs were already spoken for and had adoptive homes before they even got on the flight. Others went to foster, into foster care. At this time, I'm sure that all of them got homes. I can't, I, you can't quote me on that, but there was a very, very large interest in, in this particular group of dogs from our organization and from China Rescue Dogs as well. What's your impression having uh, been in this area for, for so long and so deeply, when these dogs reach their communities, do they act as sort of spokespersons for what's happening? Do, do they raise awareness among folks who don't really know what's going on there? Yeah, thank you. That's such a wonderful question. Um, you know, part of the work that we do is really about education. And I think we take it for granted, those who are working in the animal welfare field, that everybody knows about what's going on at these festivals. And, you know, we don't want to vilify any cultural approach. This, these, The consumption of dogs in China and other regions of the world has been going on for thousands and thousands of years, dating back to 1700 BC. So I think with the entrance of social media and larger organizations, international organizations, it's really important us, for us to educate the public about what's going on and see how we can shift that. And the cultural ideas are shifting. New generations are coming in and they're looking at other ways. And we can't look at a country as as being all for it. They, they aren't. So these dogs act as a piece of our education as well. Um, they become spokes dogs, as you say, and so do the organizations. And I'm often asked, um, how can you help? Uh, you know, if you can't donate, how do I help? But the moment that you ask, how how can I help? You are helping because you're spreading awareness and you are wanting to know more about what's going on. Okay, that's a wonderful uh, time to conclude our brief discussion. Uh, what is the website of your organization, please? It's spcai.org. And I'll just mention that China Rescue Dogs is chinarescuedogs.org, right? Right, okay. Well, Lori Califf, thank you so much for joining us on Animals Today, and congratulations. We all thank you. Thank you so much for having me on board and for spreading the word as well. Okay, more with Animals Today after this break. That is the sound of a dog whose vocal cords were cut just to stifle her voice. It's called devocalization, and it's done to cats as well. Devocalized animals rasp and wheeze, cough and gag for the rest of their lives. Some are rendered mute. And for what? So a commercial or hobby breeder can keep many animals without having to listen to them? So show dogs will be quiet during transit between shows or in the ring? So an irresponsible pet owner can leave a dog alone for hours every day? Animals Today says shame on anyone who would have a dog or cat devocalized and shame on the veterinarians who perform this unnecessary, inhumane surgery on them. Please speak out against devocalization of dogs and cats. Use your voice to protect theirs. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org.
back to animals today. Peter, the topic of today's quiz is names for groups of animals. Okay. Okay, you got it? Yes. This is a fun one. You're going to like this. We're going to start out easy, okay? Thank you. What do you call a group of fish? Okay, a school of fish. Correct. Okay, yeah. A group of dogs. A pack of dogs. Yes. A group of puppies, puppy dogs. A litter. Yes, good. A group of wolves is called a? A pack. Yep. Lions, group of lions. Pride. Yeah. All right. These are getting harder. You're right. (laughs) A group of monkeys is called? Wow. A tribe? No. No. uh, Tell me. Having fun with a... Really? A barrel of monkeys? Yeah. They really call them? They call them a barrel. Gee. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Okay, now they get a little harder. So you're going to get multiple choice on these. Thank you. A group of giraffe yeah. is called a tower, a pod, or a stand. Oh, I do think it's a tower. That's correct. A group of... Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. Tower. A group of tigers is called a litter, a troop... Or an ambush. Oh, geez. I'll go with troop. Ambush. Wow. Ambush of tigers. So concrete. I know. A group of owls. Hooters? Yeah, baby. Loomer, loomers? <laughs> or parliament? Uh, yeah, parliament. Yeah, you know that one. I know that one. That's funny. Frogs. A group of frogs is called a hopper, an army, or a ribbit. How about an army? Yes. That's interesting. You can call a group of elephants a herd, but you can also call a group of elephants what? A heavy load, a parade, or a gang? I'll go parade. Parade is correct. Here's a good one. A group of hyenas is called what? And I'm going to give you a hint, unless you think you know it. I need the hint. Your hint is... Chickens, and maybe some would say our vice president makes this kind of noise when she laughs. A cackle. Yes. A group of hyenas is called a cackle. Wow. I never heard that one. A group of dolphins is called a mob, a pod, or a cod. A pod. Pod is correct. That I know. A group of oysters is called a pile, a cluster, or a bed? Uh, I know the term oyster bed. I'll go with bed. It, bed is correct. You're doing pretty good, Peter. Javelinas live and travel in groups called what? A squadron, a gang, or a storm? I'll go storm. Squadron. Squadron. A group of crows, you and I have talked about this one, so you should get it right, is called... A group of crows is called a... Don't remember. Murder. Oh, yeah. A group of snakes is called a nest, a stick, or sliver. A nest. Nest is correct. A group of geese is called a giggle, a gaggle, or a waddle. A gaggle of geese. That's correct. Yes. Porcupines. Mm. A group of porcupines is called the prickle, a spiny, or a spiky. I'll go prickle. I prickle think. is correct. Yeah. Prickle of porcupines. 
Now, instead of asking you to name the names for groups of animals, I'm going to give you the name. Okay. And you're going to tell me what group of animals it refers to, okay? A mob refers to a group of what? And here's your hint. Australians refer to them as roos. Oh, mob of kangaroos. Yes. Oh. And unkindness, remember that one? Refers to a group of what? We've talked about this. I don't remember. Ravens, chickens, or hogs? An unkindness. Hogs. Ravens. I don't remember that at all. So a group of crows is called a murder, and ravens and crows... Yeah. are related, but they're not the same. Ravens are larger, their beaks are different, and they have different flight patterns from the crows. So a group of ravens is called an unkindness. A group of crows is called a murder. A stand refers to a group of pelicans, ostriches, flamingos. Yeah, I'll go flamingos. Flamingos is correct. Yeah. A crash is a group of rhinos, Rabbits, alligators. Rhinos. Yes. Wow. They're so colorful. Aren't they? Yeah. I know. A thunder is a group of zebras, mice, or hippos. Oh, gee. Uh, How about zebras? Hippos. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. thunder of hippos, you can, like, hear them? I guess. Okay. I guess. I... A sleuth or sloth is the name for a group of sloths, bears, snails. Oh. Trick question, huh? A sleuth of snails. I'll go with a sleuth of snails. No, a sleuth of bears. A sleuth of bears. Wow. A convocation can be used to describe a group of penguins, eagles, or ants. I think eagles. Eagles is correct. I think we've talked about that. This group of animals is often noisy, chaotic, and manic, hence they might be called a pandemonium. And here's another hint. They can live over 100 years. Let's see. Noisy, chaotic, manic. What animals live over 100 years? Tortoises. What other animal lives over 100? Uh, A bird? A gray parrot? Parrots, good. Really? A group of parrots is a pandemonium. Wow. An intrusion refers to this group of animals. And your hint is Florida probably has the worst infestation of these bugs and probably the largest of these guys as well. What's an intrusion? You said bugs? Uh-huh. Mm. Uh, they are cockroaches. Yes. Okay, your last one. You can call this group of animals whom we share 98.3% of their DNA with, either a band or a troop. Your hint is adult males are known as silverbacks. Oh, those are gorillas. Yes. Wow. Good, Peter. Good. I think pretty bad. Okay. Pretty bad, but it's, it is fascinating, some of these names. Isn't it? Really interesting. It's like, who made up these names? Yes, I know. Okay, thanks for playing along and tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Mm -hmm.